what you're trying to do is, to put it really simply, is move water as far as you can through as many diverse ecologies as possible using as little energy as possible. Welcome to Applied Mycology. I'm your host, Craig, here with your other host, Leaf. Hi there. And that was today's guest, Jonathan Todd. Jonathan is the chief design officer and co-founder of Eco Lake Solutions, and he is also the ecological designer of John Todd Ecological Design Company, started by his father, the legendary applied ecologist John Todd. Now, I met Jonathan a few years back at a workshop he was co-teaching with his father on eco-machines, an ecological technology that they've devised over the years that utilizes a diverse range of living organisms to treat environmental contamination and deal with various other environmental challenges. He discussed some of the principles of utilizing these eco-machines. One of the primary ones is diversity. One of the main things that my father reiterated and reiterated is it's all about diversity to get results in ecological design. In addition to discussing how eco-machines work, Jonathan also talked about the big picture of getting ecological technology used on a larger scale in society. The good thing is every generation of engineers that then become regulators is more educated in all of these matters. Now let's get into our discussion with Jonathan Todd here on Applied Mycology. Thanks for joining us, Jonathan, and taking time out of your busy day to talk to us about all the interesting work that you've been a part of. And to get started, I know you've worked um, with your father, John Todd, and on your own with this type of environmental technology called eco-machines. And could you just briefly describe that and what they're used for or why they're important? Eco-machine is really sort of an umbrella term for whatever ecological and nature-based engineered ecologies we cobble together to apply to a particular problem, whether it's an impaired body of water or uh, wastewater or industrial wastewater stream. And basically, we use the intelligence of nature to self-organize and heal impaired waters. Great. And what are some of the components of nature that are used in an eco-machine or a natural ecological treatment system? Well, we try and incorporate all except maybe fauna, but even some fauna here and there. No, actually everything in it. What you're trying to do is, to put it really simply, is move water as far as you can through as many diverse ecologies as possible using as little energy as possible. And so if you can send it through an algae-dominant ecology and then a plant-root-dominant ecology and an ecology like a peat ecology that maybe have some fungi in it and all of these different things. And I actually wrote a patent with a couple other guys about remediating uh, oil using natural approaches that included all of those components. Cool. And to illustrate for our listeners, could you describe like physically what the structures that are involved in these natural treatment systems would look like or how you're introducing the living organisms into said structures? Well, the structures are usually tanks, lagoons, 
constructed wetlands, lagoons with plant racks or floating wetlands on them, sometimes with aeration, but again, we're trying not to use it. Uh, wetlands, upflow wetlands planted with trees, native plants. And then when we started looking at the oil in the project that we did in Grafton, we started, well, I think we called them micro-reactors, and we just did the anoxic pasteurization of wood chips and then inoculated with the wood chips with Strafaria oyster and there were two others but four different species and in that particular decision and we alluded it to this before the recording but we sort of just took a very ecological design approach so rather than trying to keep the mycelial reactors in a condition that was optimal to them we decided to let them compete with the molds and other things that they would have to compete with so this would be more replicable and more being able to manage by practitioners that were not experts in managing mycelia that's a really fascinating point there um, for a couple of reasons but first off and this is a topic we definitely want to go a lot deeper into is making something that's replicable for practitioners who are not necessarily expert mycologists or have a you know super deep understanding of the science of growing out mycelium but still able to use them to get the benefits and then the other part that you mentioned there which is if there are going to be molds and things like that growing in it there's not really any clear scientific evidence one way or the other whether having a uh, a myco reactor of pure mycelium of one species is a better filter than uh, you know that species growing on wood chips that are potentially contaminated with a bunch of different molds on them because a lot of mold species things in the genera like trichoderma or aspergillus are actually really potent remediators in their own rights and are I would almost guess are probably more studied for their bioremediation potential than the uh, the white rot fungi and the macro fungi like the oyster and the strafaria they get much more of the attention and publicity within the field of mycoremediation but it might have been the molds all along and that was sort of our observation was that it, it, it was very likely that the molds were doing as much and if you sort of looked at the decomposition of wood chips and how rapidly that happened and you know, it would have been just so great to be able to measure what the reduction was in each microreactor, but that just wasn't even close to being feasible. But collectively, you know, they removed about yeah, 8% of the petroleum hydrocarbons. Jonathan, there seems to be definitely a bit of a bias towards a, a number of these white rot fungi, because, you know, given the capacity that the focus to then break down the heterogeneous structure of lignin, which has often quite the similarity to these uh, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon, other petroleum hydrocarbons, because they're phenylpropanes. But, you know, the thing about it is it's being applied in a reduced approach, almost kind of an extension of microbiology or mushroom cultivation, when in reality, it's the interesting observation that I definitely would love to hear insight is like, really the trying to mimic what the natural ecology is happening. Because in the soil, in a forest, it's anything but a monoculture. It's this this gradual process of a succession of whether you're moving from primary to secondary to tertiary, even to, you know, like even further down decomposition roles in this forest ecology. What were the two molds? I'm sorry, I'm so unbrushed up on my, on my that you mentioned, Leif. Yeah, well, I was just mentioning the, the genera or the genera, which is the 
multiple word of genus of trichoderma and aspergillus. Yeah, that, so that was which, one that we observed a lot in, in, in our mycoreactors. And yeah, which is called um, mushroom cultivator's bane because it's like the number one thing that contaminates your spawn when you're trying to grow edible mushrooms. So it ends up having a negative perception from the mycology community a lot of times. But when you go into the literature on the ecological roles of trichoderma and its interaction with plants, it's actually can be really beneficial to plant health it can be a remediator and all this and and yeah in terms of the large ecologically complex diverse area of this what we could you jonathan maybe we can step back a minute and maybe discuss the overall design of the grafton project because i know it wasn't just the myco reactors there there was a, a few components and kind of to illustrate no, not how at all and yeah and i would just go take make one more statement about the the trichoderma is that, you know, we noticed that in some of the mycoreactors that the trichoderma would become completely dominant. Other ones, it would be slightly invasive and, and other my, huh. mycoreactors with one of the species, they'd be pretty 50-50. And then when we dumped them on the bank or on the floating wetlands, there was some sort of harmonic convergence and it just created what seemed to be a healthy plant soil ecology. It did seem to run the gamut in terms of which was dominant. And I was actually going to ask you guys if you wanted to, and maybe for phase two, but Nick Barnett, who's just, he's a, he's a landscape designer and sort of uh, an applier of ecological thinking, but he was the operator of Grafton and he was there on a daily basis. And he might be a really interesting person because he's a, a very unique thinker. His dad is friends with Stamets, but that really doesn't have anything to do with it. Nick just had a very interesting perspective and he was unbiased by any sort of previous assumptions about mycelia and how to manage it, but he had a good knowledge of it. And he'd just be an interesting person to get on this as the operator of Grafton. Yeah, great. Thanks for that recommendation. We will look him up and reach out to him. Could you just describe the different components of the yeah, Grafton treatment so se system? Sequentially, we started with, because we've just found that if you draw water through a lot of surface area in the anoxic part of the water column, that you're going to get a lot of treatment. And actually found that the majority of the treatment, the removal of petroleum hydrocarbons was done in these sediment filters, which are basically just eight inch HTP pipes with the ends covered and with saddles welded on them and they're filled with gravel and they got holes drilled in them. And there were four of those. And the thinking is that created a sort of more dynamic surface area for the bacteria and other primordial forms of life that already were consuming oil because they'd had 90 years of oil to adapt to in the Grafton Canal that they'd had all this period. And so what we did, we gave them a much more dynamic surface area. And so they was just with the water passing over them at a continuous basis and a surface area. And so they did much more removal just in between the inlet to the sediment filters to the outlet of the sediment filters where it entered the microreactors. And the removals were so great that the guy doing the measurements at Brown was skeptical and thinking that we were just attaching the petroleum to the surface area of the media inside it. But 
to the end of that we operated more months than that was possible and we also back flushed those filters i think that that theory is unlikely and it really was a dynamic surface area with whatever had evolved there in the canal to adapt to consuming the oil just got that much more of a boost before it got to the micro reactors where we were theorizing that the majority of the removal was going to be done so it went from the sediment filters to a pressure tank where it was sprayed intermittently over the micro reactors which were just totes full of inoculated wood chips with drains at the bottom and then it drained all of that so basically trying to harvest the enzymes or be treated by the enzymes in situ um, and then because we're also looking at the removal of nutrients from stormwater in terms of phosphorus nitrogen we then went through a series of translucent tanks or what you normally people would consider an eco machine with plants on top of it and we also inoculated the top of those with the spent wood chips and had really beautiful mushroom culture intermixed with the plant culture on top of these eco machine tanks and they did a good job at removing the nutrients that they passed through as well the, the funny thing is like the more creative you are and the more success you have the less scientifically documentable it is so having nick and me operate it was probably not great for the guys who are sort of doing the quap and looking at it from brown but you know i think one of the real eureka moments was to take that spent mycelia and dump it amongst the native plants both on the floating wetlands on top of the eco machine tanks and on the shore of the canal and that in itself i think is going to be the most lasting legacy of that project because it still has this kind of resilient ecology there and we're still hoping eight years later to almost nine years later to get it running again yeah you make a very good point there about how uh, the scientists working on the project probably weren't super thrilled about the way it was being managed from a data collection and analysis perspective because you're working with so many different variables you end up needing to i imagine collect a lot of samples to be able to tease out like what's specifically doing what and you know that the whole system works but that's really a hurdle of uh, doing scientific research with bioremediation is the more practical systems seem to involve a lot of components. It really isn't because I've always been based on not research, but my projects have always been based on results. I'm okay with the in out data. <laughs> yeah. But, well, that's, and, and, be, and being creative in the middle. That's, that's ultimately what we, what we want, <laughs> right? The results is what we want. And albeit, it's amazing to have a setup where you get this incredible qualitative result, kind of even reading about it. Even when the funding wasn't available to do those testings, you could see clearly that the ecologies were robust and even species which are fauna that are indicators of, you know, being sensitive to toxicity are there and that there is a function going on that's maybe hard to wrap its head around where maybe this is something where it's very important to have the quantitative to be able to have data to evaluate to model these systems and to drive the science forward. But if you have what is functionally a robust remediated ecology, you know, it's, it's interesting that it's, so I think it's an interesting dynamic where this is something that like even the researchers at Brown thought you were fudging the system, right? Because it's something that they're not used to seeing, but they, yeah, they didn't think we were fudging it per se. They thought the system was sort of fudging the numbers and you know, their observation was fair because it was such a great rate of reduction and, you know, we need to duplicate it. And I would love to do this science, but as we all kind of know, 
as much as I respect science, it has a tendency to be linear and not a systems mm -hmm. approach to understanding. And I think we need to figure out how to marry sort of the harder science and research with studying ecology. Mm -hmm. That, yeah. you know, ecology is in this linear steady state equilibrium. No, it's kind of, ecology is kind of anti-science. I mean, don't call, don't, I'm not going to go on Trump on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When I was in school, like one of my older professors who was a renowned person in the field of ecology was, we talked about ecological equilibrium because it's used for modeling systems of like, if, if everything stabilizes, what does this ecosystem look like? And this person straight up said, there's no such thing as ecological equilibrium. I think it's a false notion. Um, other notable ecologists might disagree with me, but kind of just throwing this idea out that the, the concepts of equilibrium, because if you're doing a chemistry experiment in your lab and then you mix the chemicals in a flask and then you wait long enough and then, oh, that's the equilibrium. But that concept doesn't truly exist in an ecological context. Yeah, there's too many moving dynamics that never sit still. It's in a yeah. constant state of evolution as opposed to equilibrium. You already mentioned taking the spent mycelium substrate from the filters and adding it to plants as a soil amendment, but you also mentioned you were putting it on the stream bank in the riparian zone. Was there any like erosion control function or benefit from that? Yeah, uh, it was it was phenomenal. So this bank, you know, because it was on the edge of a pretty much well a brown site canal in Grafton, the Blackstone Mill. So we dumped it on there, and why am I not remembering the name of the hurricane? It was a big one that flooded New York in 2012. Sandy. Superstorm Sandy. Sandy. Came, Superstorm Sandy came through and stomped it, and all of the conventional erosion control was just ripped away, and where we dumped the mycelial wood chips that had been inoculated and were spent, no longer really useful as in the microreactor, but they had just sort of woven their network together, and there was absolutely no erosion. You wouldn't have known that there was a storm the day before when you looked at it and where the rest of the banks were totally ravaged. And it was a pretty, you know, I'd, I'd heard Paul Stamets mention stabilizing the edge of logging roads and abandoned logging roads with wood chips inoculated with mycelia. And I don't know if that subconsciously informed our, or, or whether Nick just went and dumped them on the side of that creek there and we just noticed good things happening. But uh, it certainly was a, a powerful lesson and it just makes you realize how easily and inexpensively we could do some kind of erosion control and i keep trying to now being out in california and seeing the wildfires and how they get ravaged and you know along a highway they'll do erosion control and i thought well it wouldn't be practical to use mycelia because they require too much humidity but then you see them watering and you wonder if it wouldn't be practical and faster to use mycelia with the grasses because then you got the sponge effect and maybe you can irrigate less but certainly in non-arid areas, it's a phenomenally powerful and I would guess super cost-effective form of erosion control. Yeah, and I think as, as long as there's a certain amount of mulch on top of the substrate and the mycelium, it can grow in a super arid climate as long as it's insulated in some way, as long as there's a layer that will prevent all the Right, it'll do its network it. underneath the... Yeah, I worked on a project that it was trying to do stabilization of, of a landfill slope. We put these mats of wood chips out on this landfill slope. It's full sun, just, you know, completely exposed all day. And by the end of the project, there was a bunch of mycelium growing 
within these wood chip mats because we put a layer of straw down on top of them and then a layer of jute, like a jute mat to hold it in place initially, um, which ultimately the goal would be to not have to put jute mat down and, you know, save that Well, the that jute cost. mat's okay because it, the, the, the mycelia can eat it later, right? Yeah, yeah, no, there's nothing wrong with it environmentally. It's just that it's expensive. So when you're talking yeah, about, okay, like, for this project, yeah. if we're talking about scaling this up to, you know, covering multi-acre slopes, that's a lot of jute mat. It's going to cost a lot of money. And so the kind of the idea is, you know, can it be done with just the wood chips, which are usually not very expensive or free a lot of the times. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that, that's a really good point. And I think the wood chips or straw could definitely replace the jute mat. Um, yeah. Well, wood chips are also stable, and they're not going to blow around. You know, depending on the size, and you can get them different sizes. You know, they're not going to blow around in a windstorm. And I think that they are probably the most ubiquitous and and easily managed. And eventually, they'll be there for consumption. I've also thought a lot about applications with a combination of obviously, if you're using a spent quote unquote uh, substrate, like a big thing, especially as mushroom cultivation is getting more and more popular for. For pounds of mushrooms, you're having tens of pounds of the substrate, the spawn. It's quote unquote spent, even though it's incredibly biologically active. So a number of farms, I know they just, they'll pay to have it picked up and composted. But, you know, it's something that there's definitely still a fair amount of biological oomph into it. So this is something I think a lot about, especially with people that are trying to like build soil or try to bootstrap it in a space where there's been a disturbance event for the ecology experiment I did working with some middle schoolers, we kind of made these myco cultures from basically tens to hundreds of pounds of spent mushroom spawn oyster, which is pretty great because it's tenacious and hungry, and layering a combination of compost from a thermal composter, which was oxidized, which tends to not have the biology you want, ideally. I know there's a big thing with municipal compost, they tend to overcook it, you know, and the biology may not be there. And then integrating a number of fungal foods. And the whole point was to build soil to demonstrate mimicking this natural ecological succession. So basically not layering compost, whatever soil was actually in the raised bed left over from the past season with spawn and wood chip materials and just covering in a wood chip mulch and watering it and then, you know, letting it over the course of a myceliate and fruit, these rather large mushrooms off the top, but letting them just sporulate and decompose and you know, simulate the like an emergence of ecology, you know, the fact that the sporulation would basically add back into the pile, but the mushrooms would rot and break down and attracting insects. Insects would reproduce on them and then attracting birds and jump starting it. So the one interesting thing was that definitely an anecdote of like a something I want to reproduce is that the program I was working with, it was through the National Life Federation. There was a sustainability coach who had run a garden program in this garden space they had built out for the program. And each year they had planted vegetable crops into these raised beds. And she told me remarkably when she planted into these like kind of myco beds, these like myco hugel culture setups that you know, over the past three summers when they ran the garden program, the plants had downy mildew, they had aphids, they had problems with pests and pathogens. But this summer when they did them, the kind of that myco hugel system, they planted directly into them and the plants were huge. They were robust, no pests, no pathogens. The flavor was notably more potent than in past years. And I think a lot about and how- the, And that was the first year of planting in the hugel beds? That was the and first year. Of, yeah. As opposed to just raised beds. Yeah. Doesn't that make perfect sense though? Because you had all that diversity down below it. And exactly. To your point about the hugel beds, um, 
I participated, you know, actually the guy just asked me to help come and do the work and installing a hoogle bed next to a, a food forest in a suburban backyard here in suburban California and did that last weekend. And so it was a lot of fun and putting mycelial inoculant in, although, you know, dry inoculant, which there's not many good ones out there, but I think he was onto a good product and, uh, you know, wood and of course compost and He's a big biochar guy, so there was a lot of biochar sprinkled in that, along with the rock dust, the crab shell, and just the whole recipe to uh, make good things happen in the near future. Yeah, it's, it does seem like figuring out how to make mycelium or mushroom spawn a more widely thought of soil amendment or thing to blend into soil. And even like you all have been mentioning with the spent mushroom substrate, it makes even more sense because that's a waste product from mushroom cultivation. And it doesn't make sense to compost it thermophilically because then you kill it. Yeah. I mean, it still has use, it. but yeah, you're probably not going to leverage all the, all the benefits of it. And, and a lot I of bet times it would go very well. It's too slow for municipal and commercial operations, but I bet it would vermicompost beautifully though. Yeah. I know a couple of, of mushroom farmers that they take all their old moldy substrate and basically either put it in a bin or leave it on a concrete slab and, and in some situations inoculate it with, or I'm not inoculated, but add worms to it. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of situations, they don't even add worms. They just leave a pile of spent mushroom substrate on a concrete slab and worms get into it. And then there's an abundance of vermicompost going on. And then if we think about what's in the spent mushroom substrate, even if it's not spent, let's make the distinction here between spent mushroom substrate where it was successfully made, you yielded some amount of mushrooms off of it, and now it's not yielding much. So you kind of want to get it out of your fruiting room and do something else with it versus contaminated substrate where basically something went wrong and during the spawn run and the, your material is just covered in molds, which... A mushroom cultivator doesn't want, but it's back to those trichodermas and penicillins and aspergillus. And so if you're mixing that into the soil, then it's this uncanny way of introducing a bunch of biological diversity that, you know, it's important to start thinking about as many waste products as resources. I mean, just big picture, you know, re reduce, reuse, recycle, all that jazz, but thinking of things like mushroom substrate and how they can be incorporated because it is almost like for a you know if we're talking about restoring soil ecology and soil health or filtering water it's not necessarily clear that you want that pure culture you want that pure you know strain of one white rot fungus and that you don't actually want a bunch of weird molds and bacterias that mushroom cultivator was turns their nose up what at percent because, you know, of the of the waste coming out of a, a commercial mushroom operation because i know you work with them leave is contaminated and what percent is spent yeah it depends on how good people's technique is yeah <laughs> but uh <laughs> but even even like a top-notch mushroom farm usually at least 10 percent of the spawn produced is gets contaminated in some way or another you know like more more sloppy operations it could be a, a lot higher than that but maybe up to 95%, but even some of the more prolific mushroom farms and spawn companies I've, I've collaborated with or worked with, you'll have days where they make a, you know, 80 bags, you know, 85 pound bags of mushroom spawn in their huge autoclave. And on this run, all of them get contaminated. And then that's, you know, 80 bags of moldy, wet sawdust. And 
what to do with that because it could be still a great asset. Yeah, it's carbon, it's nitrogen, it's all of those things. And so, yeah. and it's, it's also live biology that wasn't commercially viable for a mushroom operation. But Jesus, we have so many areas probably around everywhere that's growing mushrooms. And, you know, if you think about if we learn how to be better about how to apply this, you know, to, to pig lagoons, I mean, even though that's not a sustainable, but, you know, manure lagoons and all of these things that are, you know, really impacting different areas and just how to use it to make runoff cleaner and wastewater cleaner. And we know it will work and we know it will also create soil organic carbon faster if we use it. And isn't the whole game right now sequestering carbon, not in numbers on our way to lead conferences, but actually putting carbon in the soil. You mentioned before getting drawn into a project of uh, let's grow some mushroom spawn so we can have some food grown on site. That's not really even the main interest from my perspective. It's let's get a bunch of mycelium growing on this property so that when there's a, you know, a bare patch of land because some something got ripped up or something had to get developed. All this spent is mycelium, you know, whether it's spent or not, is a tool that can be used to address all of these issues. And spent um, doesn't mean dead. No, it, it just, just means, means it's, it's not, not yielding enough that a, yeah. a commercial farmer would want to use it anymore. Yeah, no, to me, I mean, other than for my personal consumption, for me seeing, I mean, it's great and it attracts people and it gets their interest. The food and medicine is very interesting, but really completing the cycle and getting it back onto the land and into the soil is the most interesting thing for me. Yeah, and one of the more curious applications, um, yeah, so it's like the notion of spent where like more so it's been flushed, right? Because usually the idea is you're controlling the temperature and humidity in an indoor environment to kind of get the quote, like quote maximum yield. But even I've seen examples of where one of my friends who's a mushroom farmer has taken a flush block buried it in his garden and his backyard covered it and then basically the next successive flush was bigger than the first yielded flush because you know yeah. there's all these conditions that we're trying to replicate in a controlled environment but this organism has evolved to deal with the natural temperature fluctuations humidity variance and also the the microbiology that's you know present in that natural yeah, ecology I, I will testify to that point uh when i used to work in commercial mushroom production how many times we had bags of oyster mushroom spawn that were they'd flushed a couple times we were getting you know less than a quarter of a pound off of them and then we just sat them outside and usually it was because we were too busy and we didn't process the material and we so we just sat somewhere and now they've got you know pound clusters growing off of them when they were growing something like a quarter of that in the fruiting room and it's probably because of yeah being reintroduced to the actual natural fresh air humidity etc you know I, I came from tugboats into the world of ecological design and one of the main things that my father really knocked into not knocked into me that makes sounds like he's an abusive person um, really just just reiterated and reiterated it's, it's all about diversity to get results in ecological design you know, in like a fruiting room, of course you have to have the controlled environment if you're doing commercial mushrooms and that's your sole source of income. You have to have some control over it. But I think when we get in a situation where we can, you know, the food production is incidental to the whole cycle and we can raise oysters that way, you know, that, that to me would be the home run. You know, from my experience with applied mycology, one in 
important thing I picked up on, and maybe it's because I'm a, you know, go with the flow, path of least resistance type of person. You know, it can present a lot of cool, innovative ideas, but if the people who are, you know, in charge of giving the green light or giving the funding are not enthusiastic about it and getting it, then I'm usually not really forcing the issue um, because eventually you run into people who are enthusiastic about it, but there's a challenge of trying to promote some kind of new, innovative, natural ecological design idea that doesn't have a whole lot of on-the-ground proof behind it, and then and it's already kind of strange and complex, and then so I know a lot of times it has to be done with the caveat of you know, we don't necessarily know what's going to happen, but here's a We have enough of, experiential anecdotal evidence to know that we could do a really good thing you know i know there was an experience where on this there's this project and uh there was a yeah eco machine water treatment thing as part of the design but the project was going quite a bit over budget and you know i guess the value engineering they're trying to figure out okay what can we cut and they wanted to cut the eco machine because they thought it was just some sort of like cool demonstration science fair project type of thing and didn't quite grasp that it was actually going to treat the wastewater so just to be perfectly clear, due to the permitting path that we had to take, we decided to marry an eco machine with an Arenco system, which isn't, you know, an on-site system. It's natural. It's, you know, it's chemical free and everything like that. And, you know, it doesn't have any biodiversity, but it's a fairly efficient way of getting numbers to a pretty good level. But, you know, we're talking nitrogen of 30, less than 30 and, you know, an eco machine will get us down to you know, under three. If we're just charging back into the into the watershed, you don't want to discharge nitrogen unless you're going to go into the soil. But anyway, yes, it was presented to ownership that it was extraneous, and so that's why I spent the early you know, late spring, early summer, fighting to keep the eco machine and not just the eco machine, but the constructed wetlands because they are passive and they do an amazing job of polishing the water after the eco machine it's just this constant friction but you know to be fair to this project it's that way with all projects yeah so we, you've talked about different anecdotes and projects you've worked on that were utilizing this ecological um, you know wastewater treatment technology and are these methods that are more suited for small-scale private properties, or are these technologies that you think with the right amount of investment, capital, kind of, you know, support could actually be implemented to, say, you know, be a city's municipal wastewater treatment system? They can be part of it. They can be all of it. It depends on the climate. It depends on the available footprint. Um, just for instance, right now, you know, the city of Martinez, California and the East Bay has wastewater treatment polishing lagoons and summer 2019, we put in floating wetlands and they actually saw an improvement in their water chemistry discharging and they're under a basin plan. So in a few years, they'll be held to compliance and worst case scenario for them is that would mean they would have to just upgrade their entire system from the headworks through the discharge and not invest anything in the polishing wetlands. And, but we've showed significant enough improvement with just 26, 10 by five floating wetlands that we're looking at that being the solution for them to meet their whole basin discharge limit plan. 
So that's where there's infrastructure in place and we can improve it using biodiversity and plants and all of our other friends that we bring to the party. You know, there's also city of Chicago where real estate's tight or New York City where there's no room and so much is in danger of global warming and sea level rise. Sometimes a package plant that, you know, that has a membrane reactor in it takes a small footprint, a relatively large amount of energy, but gets the water back into the watershed clean is a better answer. So there's a real variation. It's not a yes or no answer, but I think natural and ecological approaches, whether you go both upstream or all the way downstream, can be employed in many municipal and large-scale applications, and especially in agriculture where you generally have footprints and you also are having really high levels of polluting going on. And so I think it's actually the most cost-effective and easy way of getting areas like that. In cold weather, wastewater treatment, municipal applications, I would say that, you know, a city like South Burlington and where they did, you know, 20% of the waste there, that's totally viable in that size city where there's a footprint available, but in a more compressed area or with a more challenging climate than Vermont, then maybe it's not viable or it's not the best return on investment. Maybe use the money that you'd spend to do that to go upstream and, you know, improve runoff and stop water from going to the rivers from the highways and everything like that. As always, it's landscape and climate and place dependent, sounds like. And, and I do appreciate the point you mentioned that in certain situations, maybe using some sort of high-tech membrane filter is the way to go. And that even if we want to fully embrace ecological design and ecological treatment to its fullest extent, that doesn't mean completely shutting ourselves off from high-tech engineering stuff. It's like the hybrid concept. No, it's kind of funny. And people seem to think of like, you know, when people are very inclined to say, well, it's just a conventional plant. It's like, well, what kind of water, water chemistry parameters is it able to meet? Because that's pretty good. You know, that that's, that's not a bad thing to have there. And yeah, it's got a higher carbon footprint than an eco machine, but it's got a smaller physical footprint than an eco machine. And so I think you can't be a zealot about any single technology, but just understand that, you know, natural systems have their place everywhere. And I think eco machine is too our work centric. One of the things that I started doing when I got out here was doing ocean-friendly gardens, which are basically, you know, rain gardens, but inoculated with, it's a whole surf rider criteria of inoculants and methods of planting and uh, depressions for percolation and everything like that. But I started doing that because first I'd done a big wastewater system for an agricultural company called Luminera, which was 250 homes and all the processed waste from the largest lemon and avocado producer in California. And so I got the opportunity to do that and moved on from that to doing these ocean friendly gardens at the city of Inglewood City Hall and one at the Gardena County Library. And now I am presently working both with the city of Martinez, expanding their system, but also in lakes that have been impaired by nutrients and golden algae throughout Southern California, which is, it's kind of interesting. We've by using natural systems and aeration, we've managed to be the only process that has managed golden algae where fish populations can come back. So that's been pretty cool to be able to work with as well. Nice. That's a good piece of evidence for 
these types of techniques. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. four years now on the first Lake East Lake, and they had no fish from 2013 to 2017. They could not maintain fish. And then we put it in in 2017, and they put more fish in a few months later, and they have not had a fish kill, and their golden algae readings have been at non-detect. And then we did another lake, which is Lago Santa Margarita, and they remain at non-detect, and they just put 6,000 new fish in. Wow. wow. So, so Jonathan, definitely on that note, um, with such incredible qualitative results and the aspect of management, kind of going back to the Grafton project, why didn't the project continue? Like, uh, if, if there's such incredible results, why an example of Grafton project being, you know, the case study for it initially being out in Massachusetts, and then more so in the maritime area, and then moving inward to actually deploy it in Grafton. Why do such amazing systems that have incredible qualitative you know, effects don't continue? I have no idea because, you know, at the opening of Grafton, you know, where we already had some results before we did the opening, National Parks was there, EPA Region 1 head of was there, Mass Department of Environment, and everybody had such good will towards the project, City of Grafton. And we were never able to translate that into funds. And you know, Obama was reelected, so it wasn't like we were going to have all of our science fund pulled, and I will never understand that. So right now we're, we're pursuing other forms of funding. So I don't want to say, even though there's been an eight year gap that, uh, that Grafton won't continue. And really our, our, our goal for Grafton is to leapfrog it down the Blackstone river to the, to Providence, cleaning up the water as we go. Yeah. I think in the book, it says the funding for the project wasn't renewed due to federal financial cutbacks to projects in new England. So I don't know what that specifically means, but I think um, to get political here for a second, when we talk about things like, uh, you know, reducing government spending, sometimes this might be the stuff that suffers. Yes. It's easy to say, lower my taxes. Why, why is the government wasting all this money? Yeah, the government does waste money on a lot of things, but also See, that's the problem. That's why I have some, some sympathy for the libertarians, but not much. But I mean, we can't clean up our environment and not pay taxes. Yeah, yeah. We can't totally. continue to drive on roads and not pay taxes. We can't educate children and not pay taxes. I do have I, my my sympathy with the libertarians. I think begins and ends at the government has to be more accountable on how it spends our money. I don't think the term renewed is exactly correct. I may be wrong about this, but I think it was a single shot that we got, and we were never able to get more. Yeah, and I think that's how most projects like that end up being set up, that it's like, we're going to do this for a year, and then maybe you'll get more funding if it's amazing, but usually the implication is you're going to get a year of funding, and that's going to be it. Yeah, so I just thought, you know, we had Brown, Worcester Polytech, all of those agencies, everybody positive, and it still didn't get the funding. And it needed more research, and, you know, one season of evidence wasn't adequate to prove that this worked. And we needed to do it in another location to really show how effective it was. It's sort of an unfinished experiment. Yeah, like that's the kind of project think, you know, that multiple PhD dissertations could be done on a project like that because there's oh, so many absolutely. interesting details. Absolutely. And, you know, the guy who owned it is actually Nick's dad and, you know, Paul's friend. And so, you know, there's huge will on his part, on my father's part, on my part, 
on Nick's part. Everybody is so invested in, in, in not letting this die. But of course, we're always, you know, selfishly making a living on the side. So <laughs> there's right. that. So, so to take that line of thought in the in a constructive direction, uh, what what other funding avenues are being pursued, or what advice would you give to people who might be involved in a project like this, who maybe want to try to have a you know long term strategy to continue to be funded beyond the first year of the pilot? Maybe you're talking to a really bad person considering our results on that one, but I would go after private funding. I would allocate the time to go after all funding, government funding, private funding. Wealthy individuals are the least amount of bureaucrat, but sometimes the hardest to manage. But sadly enough, it's the least satisfying part of the work and the most important part of it. And maybe because we didn't put enough emphasis on it, we sort of assumed because it worked and went well that we would, but we did put quite a bit of effort onto it. So I, I really don't know how to answer that completely, but I do know that we are still pursuing funds whenever the opportunity comes up. Oh, thanks. Then that was a helpful answer. You know, that that wasn't a question I was expecting to get a, you know, this is the answer type of thing. I would, I would, I would just add to that answer. Find somebody who's got the mind and the dedication early on in the project. When you're first putting the concept together, who understands money and where to find money, whether it's a grant writer who shares your passion for getting it done and make that and give that equal importance to the ecological design and the science and everything like that, but continuing funding. It's not interesting to us, you know, to you and me, but it's so vital that we have people who are good at it and respect them and bring them to the table. So that's how I would enumerate on that further. For most of us who work in the field, money's kind of boring. We want enough in our pocket and our bills paid. And other than that, there's not a lot of interest. So you raise a super important point there, which is that with this type of work, we really need a integrated team with diverse skill sets and not just the scientists and designers, but the, the people who can pragmatically make the thing, you know, financially viable and also outreach and marketing and, you know, alert the public to the fact that this is a thing trying to actually do good for the environment uh, doesn't end it understanding how the environment works for sure. Craig, do you have any uh, like final questions or thoughts you want to get in here before we wrap up? Yeah, I, I guess in general, and as much as the number of enterprises largely depend upon where the quality of the service is low, it's more towards the marketing end of it. Well, I think an example in Flint, Michigan, it was what happened initially was an aspect of cost saving, even though the cost would have been able to treat the water from the Flint River that would have led to pipes being not being degraded and lean contamination was so inexpensive. So when it comes to a factor of like, how would the implementation of these systems, either as a retrofit or as an amendment to existing water treatment systems, how would that stack up in a cost point, like in a long-term benefit of an eco-machine versus current systems? Because I think the biggest thing is most people look at the eco-machine saying, oh, it's this big experimental thing with the reality, it's maybe more work up front, but it continues to propagate and regenerate over time. So I guess the simple question would be like, what are ways to increase advocacy so people know this could be something that could be amended or in addition to existing water treatment systems or preemptive systems before treatment goes in for like businesses? So long-term expense versus short-term expense and the intangible return on investment. Again, I'll swing back to my answer to Leaf of whether they're, you know, these are applicable on large municipal scales. You know, the more we can design nature into our infrastructure the more robust our infrastructure is going to be 
but it's going to vary on a hugely on a case-by-case -case scenario and i just think we need city engineers and people thinking educated and it is more and more so the case in ecological design and you know i think that integrating mycelia as a permanent part of the kingdoms of life in terms of how we integrate diversity into ecological design is is a hugely important element as well but, you know the good thing is whether or not it's happening on pace enough to save the planet is up in the air but the good thing is every generation of engineers that then become regulators is more educated in all of these matters yeah that's a great note great idea to end on there to tie it all together and uh, we want to be mindful of your time we know you're a busy guy but thanks so much for joining us here jonathan and starting this conversation with us and hopefully you'll be back soon so we can get into a another segment of this material because it's a deep topic with a, a lot to discuss thank you guys i really enjoyed our hour and uh, i look forward to part two if we're able to make it happen because i think we we touched on some things that we need to expand on There you have it. Now, hopefully Jonathan will be joining us again on the show and potentially participating in a roundtable in the future. But in the meantime, we want to thank him for taking his time to inform us on Eco Machines. And if you found this interesting and want to follow Jonathan's work, check out John Todd Ecological Design at www.toddecological.com and also Eco Lake Solutions at ecolakesolutions.com If you like the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, leave a review, and follow the show on Instagram and other social media platforms at Applied Mycology. Thanks for listening.